0: So i want to pick up in verse number 10 of chapter number 2 of the book of Esther, and it says this, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, After being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Phil. I'm not even going to attempt that. "...the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch who had charge of the women, advised." Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is a turning point in the life of a young woman who had been caught up in the whirlwind of what on the outside looked like the decrees of a pagan king. But the more we get into Esther's story, the more obvious it's going to become, no, the king wasn't in charge, the king of kings was. That God was sovereignly working through what were, in the moment, some really dark circumstances. But God was there in the moment, in the background, invisible and silent, not telling anybody what he was doing. But God was working all of this difficulty for the good of Esther. But what we're going to find out in a couple of chapters, what God was working was deeper than what was going to go on In Esther's life, God was beginning to work what would go on through Esther's life, which would save a generation of Jews who were living in the empire. Before we can get to any of that, we have to go into this place where Esther gets her night with the king. And so I want to let the scriptures speak to themselves, and let's see what we can learn this evening. First of all, when we're talking about Mordecai and having to release Esther, it was an atmosphere of watchful secrecy. Look at what has to go on. And let's put ourselves in in Mordecai's sandals for a moment and recognize he did two things that I think are very commendable here. First of all, he employed faith on Esther's behalf. Verse number 10 says this. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred. Why? Because Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now remember, Esther is a Jew by race and by religion. And she's living in the Persian Empire. And her people had historically been for decades, though they had been officially released by this point, but her heritage was that of captives. Some of them would have been treated like slaves in the best case scenario, indentured servants. And by the time of Esther's generation, they would have just been low on the scale in the culture and society. They would not have been people that would have been applauded or esteemed highly at all. So Mordecai is doing two things here. Knowing that Esther is being taken away from him and being placed in the Miss Persia pageant, that's what I call it, that's not what the Bible calls it, but being placed in that pageant and knowing that the whole pageant centers around the king trying out each woman sexually to find out which one pleased him the most. That's the whole thing. And he knows that his pure virgin uh, cousin who he's been raising like a daughter is now being forced into a situation where her rights are taken away, Her control, if she had any before, is gone. And now she is the property of a process that is going to result in her spending a night with a king, a middle-aged pagan man who is very uh, sexually experienced because he has concubines, he has wives. He can have any woman in the kingdom. And so Mordecai is having to give over his 16 to 18-year-old cousin who's like a daughter to him. And he recognizes that the only hope for Esther ever having a life is for her to become the queen. Because every other woman who doesn't become the queen gets relegated for the rest of her life as a concubine among hundreds of other concubines and she lives in perpetual widowhood, as it were. Not to mention the fact that as a Hebrew, Mordecai would know that apart from her becoming the wife of the man that she slept with, she would also carry a stigma religiously. And so now here he's saying to her, you can't let it be known that you're a Jew. And so he is employing faith in levels that that Esther herself doesn't even understand. He's sensing what God is going to do, I believe, but he's also knowing it's very precarious. And so he is doing what Jesus said to do, that there are times where you are to be as wise as a serpent, and there are other times where you are to be as harmless or as gentle as a dove. This is a wise as a serpent moment. I'm going I'm to kind of juxtapose it with what happens in verse 11, and I'll, I'll talk more about them as, in these two verses uh, together. So look in verse number 11. He not only employed faith on Esther's behalf, but he, he, he tracked the facts on Esther's behalf. The Bible says every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, we find out later this whole process, actually I think it said it earlier, The whole process took a year and when the bible says every day he went up there it means he went up there every single day to check on the young lady that he he loved as his own daughter and he was raising her she had been taken away from him but he wanted to still have that paternal capacity to protect and provide, and we're not given any details about how he accomplished this, but I love Mordecai's heart because he's the only man that we see in the entire book of Esther that is actually using his role as a man, his power as a man, his influence as a man, to better a woman. Every other man that we see named or described in the book of Esther is using his authoritarian control in a very male-dominated ancient society. They're all using it to make the women uh, basically utensils for gratification for them, But, but not Mordecai. Mordecai is exercising his influence to protect this young woman who's been caught up in a system that she can't protect herself in. And I love the fact that he didn't just flake out. He wasn't so super spiritual where he just said, well, God's got it, and God's going to do what God's going to do. He knew that God was in control, but he also recognized he had a part to play. And so he used his ability, he used his influence, he used his power, he used every opportunity he could, and every day he went up there to check on the facts of the situation. Now, why do I bring these two things up? i want to go back to that statement about wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, and I want to talk to me and you about about how we're living our lives. Friends, I'm telling you, one of the reasons why unbelievers just kind of dismiss the church is because so much of what we do is caught up in theological mistiness, and it never comes down to brass tacks. When I hear of people, and this this always makes the news, when some Christian, it's always just kind of lumped in as a Christian, when some Christian refuses to give their child medical treatment, because they say, God is great, and let it be God's will be done, and, and they do not exercise the capacity of a God-given intellect and reasonability to take a sick or a struggling child to receive medical care, and they call that faith. I'm going to say, eh, that's illegal. That is wrong. That is not faith. That is stupidity and presumption. And the world looks at us, and they believe that we live in this mystical world of non-reality because of examples like that. And what I'm trying to say here is this, that there are times, friends, where we do have to leave it all on the altar. There are times where we have to leave it all to the Lord. There are times where we can do nothing, and we must fall upon the altar of God and say, God, this is completely yours. And there's other times where God looks down and he says, I gave you a brain, use it. Be reasonable about your life. If if the end result of your faith is causing you to be perceived by others as completely irrational, and that is the primary context of how you express your faith, you, you may be acting as gentle as a dove, but you've forgotten the shrewd as a serpent. With Mordecai, it was not either or, it was and both. Mordecai says, I'm going to protect her, I'm going to check on her, I'm going to go up every single day to let her know I'm still in your corner. We don't have any idea how he got to get with her every single day, but the Bible says that he did for a year. But at the same time, Mordecai was operating in a spiritual discernment and recognizing like the sons of Issachar what the times were, and he discerned what he ought to do. And so he's saying, don't tell anybody you're a Jewess. My friends, this comes into play so much later that you can't help but to look back on chapter 2, verse number 10, and say God was turning Mordecai's heart to wisdom at that point. But before we move into this next point, one of the things that I want to say is this. The the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 29.1, I think, um, says that it's the fool who utters everything that's in his mind. It's the fool who that constantly just belches out stuff and has no filter and has no regard. While Christians are never allowed to lie, Christians are never obligated to tell every truth that they know. And sometimes because we spill out things without discernment, Those things get pounced upon and they get misused. One of the things that I would like to see is for us to know when we have the truth that God does not obligate us to speak the truth, every truth that we know in every situation. Jesus didn't. When Jesus was going through his trial, he was standing there as the embodiment of truth. Accusations are coming at him. And what did the Bible say he did? He just kept silent. And there are times where you and I have to recognize this, that it is not always God's will for us to pound our personal pulpits, for us to give expression to everything that we believe about Jesus. Sometimes one of the greatest weapons you have is your silence. I forget who it was. It may have even been a proverb, but I know it's been said. It's better to be perceived as a fool when you are silent than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And I think that uh, Mordecai is a great example. Guys, I want you to hear this with me. Um, This this is not popular, I, I do think it's real. I still think we live in a highly patriarchal society. I feel like that it's pretty evident across the globe, maybe not here as much, but across the globe that men suppress and oppress women. I think in every single culture that has been the case and primarily it's just an issue of physical dominance and aggression that gets systemic and it builds over time. And so there is a general oppression of, woman, of women. Let me tell you what a godly man does. A godly man doesn't turn feminine in order to equalize things. That's ungodly. A godly man retains his masculinity. He is the creature that God created him to be. But he always uses that in a sacrificial mode, a sacrificial love, not to suppress a woman, but to elevate a woman to the place that God has given her. And so if we're going to use our power as men, our authority, whatever you want to call it, our position in our culture, we don't use it to keep the woman down. But in the spirit of Jesus, and it couldn't be more embodied beyond the, the illustration of what Jesus does for his bride. Can I say it this way without sounding irreverent? What Jesus does for his woman, what does he do? He lays down his life. He gives himself under the death. Why? So that she may be elevated and eventually exalted. And that's the pattern for all of us as men. So while Mordecai was offering protection and care and concern for Esther, he's going to be contrasted with King Xerxes. That's the other name, and it's much easier for me to say than Ashuerus. So uh, King Xerxes is going to use his position, his masculinity, his power, not for the protection and care and concern for these women, but for the control of these women, the objectification of these women the utilitarian usage of them as objects and so let's go there and listen this might make us a little squeamish but we need to just go ahead and pull off the veneer and show these things for what they are because I will tell you this we've gotten a little more diplomatic about how this is done but I don't think it's changed all that much since the times of Persia. I think laws of the land may may uh, cause some resistance to this impulse in men But it's only the spirit of of God that comes inside of a man and changes his heart and reorients him towards his attitudes concerning women. So let's go down and let's look at this system of sexualized power that was going on in the palace and going on throughout the whole empire. So first of all, this is very clear in the book of Esther. The women, those 400 women, let's just say Josephus got it right, 400 women in the Miss Persian pageant, the women were groomed to please the king. Look at what the scripture says. Now, when the turn, even that makes me cringe, each, each woman had a turn. When the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, after being 12 months under the regulations of the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with the oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, Verse 13 says, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So let's, let's just do some plain talk here. So you got 400 women. They're all spending basically what amounted to a year in the royal spa of the king's palace. There would be no expense spared. Now, please remember with me, because, I mean, What woman doesn't want to spend a day at a spa? This was a year at the spa, and all of the king's servants, anything you needed, anything you wanted, everything was given to you, and so most women would probably say, come on, sign me up, but remember the end result. The end result was to prepare you to sleep with a middle-aged man that you had never met before who would either give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So it doesn't sound too good, but that's the climate there, and so also remember, we were going back in ancient times where there was not the, um, you know, the sophistication of what we have for, for bodily cleansing and just uh, hygiene is the word I'm looking for. They, they didn't have any of that. And so there was, and I'm just going to be blunt here, men and women, th- they would tend to stink a little bit back in the day. I mean, it was just kind of a gross time period to live. And so they're being extracted from their life in the streets where they might bathe once every couple of weeks. And they're getting not only baths, but they're getting royal baths. And and here's what it says. It talks about these oils and these perfumes. And so best that historians can tell who are familiar with that time period, that literally these women would soak in rooms for hours and hours. And they would literally have over a period of a year the most intensely free fragrant oils, rubbed across their whole body, massaged into their pores, that there would be candles that are constantly pouring out aromatic fumes and uh, scents that would literally leach into their skin, and all because the king wanted them to come in for one night. And so he wanted them to have the best skin, the best hair, the best body, the best face, and the best scent on them all of this so that he could indulge his sexual appetites every night until he found the woman that he wanted to be his queen this was the system of sexualized power that esther a believer esther an orphan esther A a, a young woman taken, forcibly taken. The Hebrew, when it describes her being uh, put into the harem, it describes her being a passive object of an action against her. So she's taken from her home and placed in this this harem. And now she is being put into this uh, atmosphere and process where the only purpose she has is to present herself worthy of the king's sampling. I don't know, maybe we're just numb to it. But I'm thinking, that's a daughter of God. That's somebody that God loves with a love that you and I cannot begin to fathom. And he feels that way about all of his daughters. Every young woman that any of us have ever looked at, and I didn't get saved until I was 24, so I'll give you a very candid confession. Pornography was a part of my life for a very long time, from age 14 to 24. And every single woman in every single one of those magazines back in the day VHS tapes, every single one of them, was somebody's daughter, somebody's granddaughter, somebody's sister. But even if none of those things were true, she's an expression of the infinite heart of God who gave a piece of himself and placed it in a human being, wrapped it in DNA, and said, go into the world. And men, men said, I'll take what God meant for his glory and I'll use it for my pleasure that is our culture and gentlemen listen I know it takes two to tango I get that but I'm going to tell you that never ever would have been the multiple billion dollar pornography industry if it wasn't for man's demeaning value of women women wouldn't have come up with that one on their own guys we have to own that and when I'm looking at this in ancient times it's just, it's not different it's, we just have technology now So a man sits in his palace all day long, never giving a thought to any of the women, any of their histories, any of their stories, any of their dreams, any of their desires, any of their value. He's just going about his kingly business while those women all day, every day, are wondering if that's the day their name's going to be called, that they're rushed into the bedchamber of a middle-aged king, and they have to seduce him in hopes that he'll say, you have value, I want you to be my queen. That's our culture. And guys, I'm, I'm, and not just guys, ladies and gentlemen, we have gotten so numb to it that we are not embarrassed, we are not, we don't blush, we don't, the things that we hear now, we shrug off because we've been pounded with it for so many decades. And it's time that the church regains her agony over this treatment of the daughters of God. Now, I'm talking about the extremes. Granted, I'm talking about the, the porno- pornography industry. I'm talking about misogyny. I'm talking about the sadistic treatment and hypersexualization of women. But it doesn't have to go to that extreme to qualify as a devaluing of women. It can happen in the home of a guy living in the suburbs who just treats his wife with contempt because she doesn't meet his, va- uh, his, his desires anymore. Where time and age has maybe changed the way he looks and now he he seeks to to find different avenues for that we've got to come back to this place where we recognize that as men we value women because god does and we start from that point and then we learn not just their theological value but their actual value as human beings who have something beautiful to offer the world that has nothing to do with our sexual appetites. The king didn't get that. The king had 400 women. I I did the math. If he's got a year, and if Josephus is right, and Josephus is just an ancient historian, you got 400 women and you've got 365 days, you can do the math. And he's just, it's like taking a piece of candy out of the candy jar, one a day. Chewing it, saying, different flavor tomorrow. Don't like that one. And from that point on, those women that were given the thumbs down, they're forgotten about. They're literally placed into a harem, and that's where they spend the rest of their days, and that's the best it could be. Worst it could be, well, I mean, if the king would get rid of Queen Vashti, think of what he'd do for a concubine who didn't meet his needs. So the king... Let's just look at it in verse number 14. It's amazing this is in our Bible, isn't it? Our puritanical, you know, oh no, we can't talk about that. Well, God does. God does. Maybe the reason it's gotten out of control is because the church got too embarrassed to be real about it. And so we, we just let the culture talk about these things, and the message that they talked into generation after generation was a message of lies, deceit, and evil, and maybe that's why our culture is the way it is, because the church went mute on the issue. So the king very clearly, verse 14, was sexually serviced by the women. In the evening, each woman would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Phil, that's what I'm going to call him, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted on her and she was summoned by name. So I basically already covered that. you know, I'm actually glad that we're not given the details of when, what went on there, but I, I, I can tell you what I've, I've studied and what I've learned, and I'll, I'll keep it PG-13. I'll try to keep it PG. The The reality is, is that in, in the king's harem, the, the, the eunuchs, these were men that were castrated, either naturally through birth defect or they castrated themselves or they were castrated by the king's army so that he could be around the concubines and never be any danger to them and so these men were were meant to protect the women without posing any risk of having sexual activity with them and so these men were to train the harem in let's just call it the art of love making if you have got little kids in here I'm sorry just Use your discretion. And and friends, I'm not going to go into graphic detail, but it would have involved just about anything that can be done sexually between a man and a woman. And the eunuchs, uh, some people a lot smarter than me, historians and those that chronicle this stuff, would have told the women, this is what the king likes to do. You need to be prepared for this. And so there actually would have been training of some sort, at least verbal training. And so this goes on for a year. In a minute, it's going to talk about each woman would receive something from the eunuch to take into the king's bedchamber. Now, some writers say that it was just a matter of what, what outfit to wear. Some writers would say what makeup to put on. Other writers are a little bit more explicit. They say, no, it would have been different devices and toys used for sexual pleasure, and they would take those with him in order to, or excuse me, with them in order to, when they show up, they're saying to the king, I'm all yours, do anything you want. And remember, why are they doing this? Well, one, they were forced to. But, but after they're forced to, what, what is going on here? They're trying to become the queen by offering as much of themselves as they can to this king. I, I want to remind us that Jesus Christ said that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But the thief, talking about Satan, his objectives are to steal to kill and destroy. And he's happy doing any level of those three opportunities. His ultimate desire is to destroy us prior to the gospel getting to us because he wants as many of us to spend eternity in hell with him rather than us being set free by Jesus and spending eternity in paradise. When we hear Jesus tell that, make that statement, I've I've got to bring it home in a couple of different ways. So in our culture, the agenda of the enemy and Scripture teaches that Satan is a literal being. He is a fallen angel formerly called Lucifer. Satan means accuser. He came down to this earth. He is banned from glory. He, he's never going to. He wanted God's throne. He wanted God's position. He wanted God's glory. God evicted him from heaven. And Satan is now called the prince of the power of the air. And what he works under limited authority, limited power, but that does not mean no authority and no power. The only power greater than him is the power of Jesus Christ. But what he works in this system is he only wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And that means in our culture, the agenda of Satan today when we got up was to steal and kill and destroy. Anything and everything. And so we say, wow, yeah, I believe that. Well, let me bring it home a little closer. In our city, in our city, what Satan wants to do is work a consistent, increasing pattern of stealing, killing, and destroying. So, yep, that's true. That's happening right now in Gwinnett County and in our city. Well, let me bring a little bit of hope. In your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, Satan and demons, actual demons, actual fallen angels, have nothing else to do but to look for open doors and avenues by which they can commit their agenda of stealing, killing, and destroying. So, you say, yeah, man, we've got to pray for our neighborhood. Let me just bring it a little closer. In your family, that's all he wants to do and he doesn't play nice, and he he doesn't ask permission. All he's waiting on is an open opportunity. And when we're talking about walking in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, it's not so we can show off prophetic gifting or speaking in tongues or any of that. Listen, all of those things are legitimate gifts that God has given in the kingdom. But when we talk about living in the Spirit, it's not so we can flaunt our gifts. It's because if we're not walking in the Spirit, we are the open door by which the enemy wants to enter into our families, homes, churches, neighborhoods, cities, counties, states, and regions that he can kill and steal and destroy. And the only power greater than him on earth is the power of God. And so if we walk in the flesh, we're cooperating with the agenda of the enemy. If we're walking in the spirit, the enemy has to flee from us because we resist him in the spirit. And so when we're looking at our culture today, it's not that God has lost his power. Come on, read the back of your Bible. It's going to get unleashed in the not-too-distant future. That's a coming, amen? It's, it's not that God's lost his power. It's that we are not operating according to his power. And so what we're seeing is what? Well, part of the glaring evidence that our culture is in the hand of the enemy is this hypersexualization and abuse of girls and women. It's not the only factor, but that's the factor we're talking about tonight. So guys when temptation hits you on your computer i'm going to make it a little harder for you to give into that temptation the spirit of god will rescue you from that and deliver you to where it's not a temptation anymore you're not bound as that a permanent temptation in your life i promise you you can be absolutely delivered from it but let me tell you in those moments of weakness i want you to know that it's not simply a sexualized moment in your mind it is the active presence of a demon coming into that moment to steal from you, to kill something in you, and hopefully to destroy something great in your life. And our culture just says, we love this stuff because it's our freedom. And if they'd listen a little bit more closely according to the wisdom of heaven, it's not freedom at all. It is the heaviest of chains that is hitting our culture at this time. It's not new. That's what we're learning in the study of Esther. It's been going on a very long time. So look down with me in verse number 15 because the night arises with a young Jewish girl named Esther. It's her turn. Verse number 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go to the king, She, Esther, asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. We don't know exactly what all this means. We do know that there was a distinction between Esther and apparently all the other women. Esther is is revealed in the book of Esther as a, a very submissive Spirit, She just just operates with a yieldedness and a gentleness. As a matter of fact, we've already been told that wherever she goes, she's been getting favor. And there's something winsome about the young woman. And she found herself obeying Mordecai, who said, don't tell him that you're a Jew. Keep it a secret. She obeyed. Here she is under the charge of the eunuch. And she's been promoted to a pretty high status within the harem. And the eunuch is now, there's something within the eunuch, whatever his name was, and he's, he's saying, this is Hegai, he's saying, I, I want to help her. And so she's gaining favor with the eunuch, and at the time comes, it's literally, let's just say she's going into the king at 9 o'clock that night. It's 7 o'clock at night, and Hegai says, uh, Esther, your name's being called. This is your moment. And instead of leaning onto her own understanding, well, I'm going to take this, I'm going to wear this, I'm going to bring this toy, I'm going to do this, and this is going to be, and, you know, and she just looks at Hegei in complete surrender and she says, Tell me what you think I should do. And she distinguishes herself, not trying to prop herself up with anything, not trying to flaunt herself in the way that. You know, it's it's almost reasonable that all these other very frightened young virgins would do. And Esther is, is expressing and exemplifying a yieldedness. And please don't forget, this is a really, really dark moment for her. This is not a dream come true. This is not, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous. This is a young girl who's about to have her purity stolen from some dude she's never met. And yet there seems to be a calm and a peace on her. And she just says to Hegai, tell me what you think I need to do. Tell me what I need to take. And the Bible says she took nothing else beyond what was recommended. We're not even told what that means. And that's not what that means. That's not my purpose. My purpose is to say that she was different than all of the other women. I think this is a good, good moment to, to express this. We, we are very seldom in control of our circumstances. Um, We're told that it's through much tribulation that we will enter into the kingdom. We're told that. So beware, woe unto those who listen to the false prophets that say you get saved and you're walking in spirit nothing bad ever happens to you. That's, That's not true. It's not biblical. It's false. It's wishful thinking, but it's not true. Uh, we have no reason to ever think that Esther wasn't doing anything other than walking in some type of integrity and holiness before God. And she's taken out of her home. She's placed in a harem for a year. She's objectified and beautified, and now she's her name's called, and she's being put in the bedroom of a man that she's never met before. And she's calm, and trusting, and peaceful. You know, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about being spirit-filled. I want to make sure that we stay balanced around here, because most people when they say, "Are you spirit-filled," they're talking about the sensationalized, supernatural kind of um, manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And that term doesn't not mean that. But sometimes you know what spirit-filled is? Peace in the storm. the ability to lay your head down when life is crashing around you. Spirit-filled is not, you know, falling down on the floor and Holy Ghost glue and that kind of stuff. Spirit-filled sometimes is the absolute bedrock certainty that you're in the hand of God, even though the world around you feels like all hell's breaking forth against you. And Esther seems to be typifying that right now. The reason why I bring this up is I just want to speak very briefly and and precisely on this. Some of you ladies have undergone the very type of abuse that I'm talking about here. And the enemy wants to make you doubly abused. He not only wants the actual events that uh, ambushed you in life through the hands of men, uh, he doesn't only want you to bear those scars, he wants you to hear his hiss in your ear every day after that. That it was your fault. um, That you deserved it. That... uh, you damaged goods and nobody will ever love you. That you're unclean. And I want to tell you, for the glory of Jesus, if you will listen and you'll have to be militant and determined and you'll have to find that that corridor in the spirit where you take ownership and you start fighting back those lies. And I want to tell you, part of your inheritance is the peace that passes all understanding. You you, you are entitled to that as a child of God. As a daughter of God, you are entitled to that peace. And my desire is that there'd be such a move and a baptism, a corporate baptism of the Holy Spirit Not so we would manifest more and more supernatural signs and wonders so that we would stand in our identity as the people of God and every accusation of the enemy that comes against the truth of our identity in Christ, every accusation would fall to the ground ineffective against us. That is what I believe is open and available for us. So I'm going to just speak this and the Lord will take it as deeply as he needs to. As a daughter of God, You are not perpetually defiled. You are not unclean. You are not damaged goods. You haven't lost any of your value. As a matter of fact, if you're pressing into the Lord, there is going to be a greater manifestation of your value because you bear the scars of what was done to you, and yet you're still pressing into Jesus, and you're still glorifying Jesus. Esther motivates me in, in, in circumstances where I have no control. In, in, when other people are making decisions that might affect my life or those that are making decisions to affect your life, and we can be tempted to view ourselves as everlasting victims, we need to stand up for the glory of Jesus and in the spirit of Jesus and say, I am not a victim. Was Jesus a victim? Because nothing ever has, nothing worse has ever happened to anybody that walked this earth than the Son of God. And he was no victim. He rose up triumphantly and conquered that which threatened to conquer him. And he did it in the will of the Father. So be empowered and strengthened with that. Let me give you these things, and then we've got to to be done. So we see the system of sexualized power typified through King Xerxes. We see Mordecai, so very different, providing watchful care and protection over esther during this process to the extent that he could and then look at what god does this is really where i wanted to get to esther was protected and promoted by god in the midst of horrific circumstances look at what god does for his daughter first of all there was an unseen hand that held esther very quickly in verse 15 the bible just says esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her that's not coincidence that's not just Esther, you know, being really slick. That is God giving Esther favor in the midst of circumstances in a context that was very unfavorable. So God didn't take the problem away. He just kept promoting Esther within that context of a problem until she was finally delivered from that problem. And that is what favor is. Favor, my friends, doesn't mean you walk without assault on your life. Favor isn't that you are immune from difficulty. Favor simply means that you and Jesus are walking through whatever it is together and he keeps bringing you successive victory. And we can't know victory if there isn't opposition. We we want the experience of, excuse me, we want the satisfaction of feeling victorious without the process of being opposed. And so life's going to oppose you. You know how I know that? Because you're a child of God. You're, the, you're one of the only things on planet Earth that can bring God glory, and that is the thing Satan fights the most because he hates God being glorified, so he comes against the objects that glorify God, and you're one of them. So you're going to deal with the battles. You're going to deal with the opposition. You're going to deal with the trouble. And, and, and listen, God the Father didn't even spare God the Son from that reality when God the Son was on Earth. So if Jesus experienced it, that's why Paul said, I want to know you, I want to know the power of your resurrection, but I also want to know the fellowship of your sufferings. And so that's when we know we're growing when we're willing to walk through the valley of suffering but we're confident that we will come out on the other side it is through the valley of the shadow of death not bogged down in the middle of it and dying there you're moving through that thing and so esther just kept winning favor i just love this because i don't think she was aware at all of, of really what god was doing and it gets even better so it was not only this unseen hand holding her and by the way You don't see his hand all the time, but I promise you it's always there Some of you tonight like right now Do not sense the hand of god around you and on you and under you and before you and behind you But I promise you it's there Esther may not have known what was going on, but God knew what was going on. That's what Job said. Job said, I move forward, God's not there. I look to the left, God's not there. I move to the right, God's not there. I turn behind me, he's not there either. And then Job comes to this amazing conclusion. He goes, God's not here, there. I I don't know where God is, but he knows the way that I am taking. And when he proves me, I'll come forth as gold. So the the reality is, is that when you don't know where God is, you can just lift your hands and praise and say, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know where you are. You're not moving. You're not saying anything. But I know you know where I'm at, and I'm good with that. And sometimes that's about as, as, as organic as faith gets. And so look down at verse 16. So it's not only the unseen hand, but it's the sovereign hand. And the sovereign hand turned the heart of the king. So Esther was taken to King Xerxes, into his royal palace, and it was the tenth month. So it's a winter night in the seventh year of this king's reign. He's in his mid-forties. And in the seventh year, the, the king receives Esther into his bedroom. All details are spared. We don't need to make them up. We just know that they were intimate together. She having no choice, he having all control, but they had physical intimacy together. Maybe not emotional, probably not, but physical. But look at in verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. Now listen, I'm, I don't, we can't get distracted by what about the 399 that didn't get picked? I don't have the ability to address that at all tonight. All I know is that the best we can tell, there was one covenant daughter, one, one daughter of Abraham in the entire group. And the God of covenant said, I'm going to take what they meant for evil, I'm going to turn it for your good. And So the, the the teenage girl that buried both her parents, the teenage girl that was taken away from the man, Mordecai, that was to love and protect her, the teenage girl that was trained in seduction for a year when it probably made everything within her pure heart cringe, To be in that situation. She gives herself physically to a man she had never met before, and the proverb comes true that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and like the river of water, he turns it wherever he wants. And God turned King Xerxes' heart to Esther, and he said, I love you. And the Miss Persia pageant was over. It was settled. The Bible speaks of King Xerxes delighting himself in the other women, but it's only Esther that gains his love. All, all the other le- women experienced his um, arousal, but only Esther experienced his affection. And that's all it took. God turned it. Now, here's something I want you to know God was never wringing his hands about the outcome. Say, how could God let Esther? go through that because God knew exactly what God was going to do. God knew that it was never going to be a one-night stand for Esther, that Esther was actually going to become the king's wife, therefore the queen over the entire empire. And so God was the only one who had all of the facts, all of the wisdom, all of the understanding. He's the only one that knew exactly what needed to happen when it needed to happen, and he was the only one that could make it happen. And he did. And by the way, That same sovereign God is your God. When when you don't know what's going on, when it's nothing but bleak, nothing but bad, nothing but question marks, nothing but uncertainty, nothing but antagonism on the outside, and you don't know what's going on, it is a bedrock of faith for you to be able to say, God, I trust you, you're sovereign, you will work all things together for my good because you are my Father in heaven above. And when we as the church can come back to our bedrock confidence that God is two things, he's good and he's sovereign. When we will say he is sovereign, which means he's in absolute control and he is good. When we can come to that certainty, we can abide with the times of confusion, the times of uncertainty, the times where we're not in control and we don't have the answers. We can say in our moments of faith, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why it's happening, but I know one thing. My sovereign God who is in control is also good and therefore good to me and he will make sense of this thing. And friends, that is faith. That's not positive thinking. That's theological certainty. A gracious hand promoted Esther. He set the royal crown on her head. The last time we saw that crown, it was was being required of Vashti to wear it naked in front of him. And Vashti said, I'll never wear that crown again. And the king said, you're right. You will never wear that crown again. And now that crown is now being placed upon Esther's head. And the king made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. And he said, we're going to call this Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. I love this. I love this. Why? She's the exile. She's the captive. She's the orphan. She's the cast off. She's the rejected one. She's the forgotten one. She's the, she's the, 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 the one under dominance and control. And God says, I don't, I don't have any issues with that. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the least likely person in the kingdom who was in the lowest class, the lowest sphere of society. And God says, I'm just going to get my hand up underneath her and I'm going to go. And He just put her in the highest office that a woman could possibly hold in the land to the extent that everybody in the land knew Queen Esther. You know why? Because they got a tax break that was associated with her name. So it wasn't just the king. They're like, we like this Esther lady. She is keeping the king happy, and we're getting to feast, we're getting to celebrate, and God did all of that. You never give up on the goodness of God when your circumstances are telling you otherwise. You never give up. You never ever say, oh no, this is the end of the road. No, it may be a bend in the road, but it's not the end of the road because God will never give up on his children. We can never give up on him. Will you stand to your feet tonight? Wow, he's so good. Just good. So right now I want you to take the thing. Whatever your thing is, it may not look anything like Esther's thing. But you know the thing, the thing that you're really struggling to praise him for or to praise him through. I don't want you to wait till you feel it. I want, I'm going to appeal to your spirit-touched will. Tell him he's good. Tell him he is good. He's not good in spite of that thing. He's good in that thing. He's good. The thing's not good. He's good. Lord, you're good. Lord, you're good. You're sovereign, you're good, and you're good to us. We choose to trust you. We command our emotions to take a back seat to our will. And in our spirit-tempered will, we declare that you are good. We trust you. You're not done yet. You're not done working it yet. We trust you. And Father, we take authority over the way we think about this thing that is troubling our soul. We take authority and we say we shrink that thing down and we magnify the Lord. We magnify the Lord, for you are sovereign, you're good. You've never failed us. You've never had to apologize to anybody. You are wise and holy and good. And Lord, by faith, we say that we will stand in your presence one day, and we'll look back on this very present moment, and we will say, I can't believe I wasted a minute fretting over that thing. You are good, We bring you our baggage because you're good. We bring you the wrongs done to us because you're good. We bring you all of the things that have bewildered us in the past because you're good. We bring you every failure that we have found even current accusation against our soul about. Lord, we bring you all of that. We will not listen to the enemy. And we will listen to the Holy Spirit who says we are accepted in the beloved. We are complete in Jesus. We are more than conquerors. We are always made to triumph in Jesus Christ, who is the fragrance of victory to those of us who are made alive in him. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen.